This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Marina Sirtis, Deanna Troy from Star Trek The Next Generation. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome listeners to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Amy Nelson, and joined with me today is Justin Ozer. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Always good to be talking about Next Generation, but today when we're recording this happens to be both Easter and April Fool's Day, so it's an interesting day all around. It is. I'm trying to stay cool here. My AC is not working, and we're in the 85s, mid-80s, so whew, it's I'm warm. S- sorry to Getting hear that. warm here in Las Vegas. I wish I could transfer my AC to you. It hasn't gotten quite that hot, but it's in maybe the low 80s here. So hopefully that gets fixed soon before it gets, you know, into the hundreds. Yeah, I know, right? (laughs) Well, listeners, Richard is out this week. We miss him. Um, But we have a special guest who we're going to introduce in a few moments. But we wanted to give you some feedback uh, from our James L. Conway interview. That was Earl Grey 221. Justin, you want to start us off? Yes, so uh, Brandon Shea Matala says, Great interview, guys. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Hearing the behind the scenes stories, and thanks for asking my questions. Well, thanks, uh, Brandon Shea. Glad you enjoyed it, and you did have some great enterprise questions, and uh, it was great to hear James L. Conway's feedback on those. Yeah, I mean, he directed so on so many different shows, mm-hmm. you know. So, good I mean, to we get probably those. could have talked with him for hours just about each episode because there's so many across so many different series, but it was, it was good that we got an opportunity to talk with him about what we did. Yes. Alex Post says, great job, everyone. Really interesting stories here. I'm trying to imagine how different Voyager or Enterprise could have been had James directed, not directed the pilots. The pilots usually do a great job in establishing the tone for the first season anyway. So it's interesting to try and imagine how they might have been different. Yeah, very interesting to hear, you know, his possibilities of uh, directing those openers. Yeah, the what ifs. How would Caretaker have been different if he did direct it? How would Broken Bow have been different if he didn't? Because he was saying that he was actually responsible for a good amount of the look and feel of of the show. So, yeah, very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, uh, Tim Hand said, Many thanks to James L. Conway for answering my question. Would have been interesting to see how his cinematic style would have differed from Jonathan Frakes had he directed First Contact, the movie. So, yeah, thanks, Tim. And... That was a great question, asking if he had been offered uh, to direct any movies, and he did, and it was very close to directing First Contact, uh, except Patrick Stewart had the final okay, so that changed things. I know, what what a bomb that was dropped, I mean, to just imagine him doing it and the differences that would have taken, I mean, we love First Contact, we love what Jonathan Frakes, Frakes did with it, so just so interesting to go down that rabbit hole of what ifs. Yeah, who knows? Maybe if uh, James L. Conway directed First Contact, it would have been a psychological thriller like Frame of Mind. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Never know. Well, Zach Moore says, great interview. It was fun hearing his take on Discovery and also all the episodes movies he almost directed. I didn't realize he directed Smallville, too. I had to look it up and It was a few episodes later in the series run. Had I known, I definitely would have had a question or two, but thanks for the mention and getting some brief thoughts from him on it. Oh, and no, I didn't play in the World Series of Poker. Ha ha. I was referring to how in the early 2000s, it was everywhere on TV. 
If you were channel surfing with nothing to watch, odds are there was a poker being shown somewhere. Well, good to know that Zach wasn't the whiz kid of early 2000s World Series of Poker and was just watching it, but that's that's still pretty pretty great. I think he was into it because of poker on TNG. Yeah, and listeners, if you saw on the thread, he posted a picture of him playing some poker, so that was, <laughs> that was fun. Thanks, Zach. Playing poker with his sunglasses on. He was definitely the coolest guy in the room. Absolutely. (laughs) Well, let's get to it. So excited. We have with us Clara Cook from Trek FM's Primitive Culture. Clara, thank you so much for joining us. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be on Earl Grey. Well, listeners, if you're not familiar with Clara, please go over to Primitive Culture. She's done a great job. I love listening to your episodes. So Clara, tell our listeners like how your Trek story is and how you got into Trek FM. So I first started watching Star Trek as a child and a very young child. I think I was probably about five or six, maybe even a bit younger. Um, And I've loved ever since. I loved it throughout my entire life. And I first heard about Trek FM. I actually just Googled podcasts about Star Trek and Trek FM came up. And then I was at an event at, uh, I work at the London School of Economics, and I was at an event that was marking the 150th, not 150th, sorry, the 50th anniversary of Star Trek. Okay, that's not (laughs) not that old. That's not Jump the Gun. Um, You didn't time travel ahead a century, I guess, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I time traveled forward to attend this event. Um, And there was a bunch of speakers there, and they actually referenced Trek FM. They were talking about, this is podcast Mm. network online, this is network of shows, and so I was even more interested then. And so I started listening to more and more shows. And I met the hosts of Primitive Culture in various different ways. Uh, Duncan was talking at that event at London School of Economics about Star Trek. And I met Tony um, Black at a Star Trek convention in Birmingham. So and oh. the, the rest just flowed naturally. Yeah. Well, Excellent. that's great. Oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know Trek FM was being talked about at symposiums oh yeah definitely (laughs) definitely well you know we have our 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 base there in the uk (laughs) at least the three of you (laughs) (laughs) yeah we we represent the uk (laughs) yes (laughs) so yeah but it's been exciting and it's been really fun and i've learned a lot about star trek actually i thought i knew a lot but actually i've learned a lot more through being involved with trek fm oh definitely definitely so what's your favorite series I just have to ask. <laughs> I ha- well, if I'm on Earl Grey, don't I have to say the next generation? <laughs> no, because that's not even my answer. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's really hard because I like, I grew up watching the original series, so mm. I have a lot of nostalgia mm. attached to that. But I think my favorite is Deep Space Nine. Okay. Very good. Me too. Yes. <laughs> so, and, and, I'm outnumbered. Yeah, that, and that's Richard's favorite too. So, oh yeah, I boy. think it is. So, you, you, we got to get you watching the rest of it. I have no, <laughs> um, you know, expectation that it'll end up being your favorite, but I want to see what you think when you see all of it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, listeners, we are going to talk about schisms, um, and this was Clara's choice as an episode. So, Clara, why don't you tell us why you chose schisms out of all the many episodes to choose from? So there's several reasons. One, because it was one of my favorite episodes when I was younger. Um, Secondly, it actually gave me nightmares when I was younger, which is unusual for a Star Trek episode, actually, or or Star Trek at all, really. Um, Mm -hmm. Also, I I really liked it because when I was younger, I really liked Riker. So I was really excited (laughs) to have an episode that was kind of centered a bit more on him. But also, I think it's really interesting because it sort of turns the trope of alien abduction on its head you know there's sort of x-files alien abduction stories but this time it's actually set in space it's alien abduction in space which mm-hmm. is kind of a strange idea but actually works really well so and has data's data's poetry exactly oh, yeah. to, love? to spot <laughs> <laughs> well listeners if you're not familiar with schisms this is the one uh where some crew members have insomnia and they are being abducted by these subspace aliens and they go to the holodeck to recreate some of their memories and they yeah that's sort of a good summary off the top of my head right justin anything to add 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it is kind of a torture Riker episode. He goes through a lot in this one. But, <laughs> but uh, I mean, yeah, that's pretty much it. You know, some subspace aliens abduct the crew. Uh, they have to figure out what's going on. Riker goes over whatever into their subspace area and uh, rescues a crew member. They close it up and they have no idea why it all happened yeah. at the end, okay. yeah. which is even freakier, I think. <laughs> so I wanted... As I rewatched this, I wanted to ask, would you consider this a Riker story? Because it starts out very Riker heavy, you know, because he's the one, you know, with the insomnia. But then it doesn't really end up being a Riker story. Would you classify it as a Riker story, Clara? Um, I guess you're right about that. It's probably not really a true Riker story because it has a lot of Geordie LaForge in it as well. And also Data wrestling with the fact that he can't really write very emotional poetry. Um, so it's not completely a Riker story. I think uh, when I was a teenager, I liked, I liked also liked the, the idea of seeing what they, what the Starfleet officers of the Enterprise did outside of their working hours. So the idea that they could suffer from insomnia, uh, the idea that they might have to go see a counselor. I mean, Troy has to be on the ship for a good reason, right? And, and she actually really, actually really justifies her reason for being on the ship in this episode. She actually helps them get those sort of forgotten memories so that they can actually figure out they're being experimented on. But I liked, I liked the idea that we get to see in, in, inside their quarters, we get to see how their, their day runs, the idea that somebody could oversleep um, and sleep through their alarm. I just think Riker's really hilarious in it. Like his pajamas, <laughs> his hair, <laughs> his, his attitude. <laughs> it's just, I, I think it's, it mixes humor and this sort of sinister, creepy storyline very well. So it's both funny, but mm. also quite creepy when they're in the uh, in the um, holodeck. And Worf yeah, is definitely. describing it. It's just <clears throat> what's going on is just kind of very creepy. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But um, yeah, well, I listeners know my love of Troy. And so it starts out a Riker story. But then in my mind, it just instantly turns to a Troy story and she saves the day and gets them all together. Justin, what do you think? Is this a Riker story? Well, I mean, I'd say it's not as much of a Riker story as, say, Frame of Mind, where it's pretty much all about his own psychological drama. But by and large, I think it is because it starts out with him and his insomnia. And in the end, you know, he saves the crew member. There are other people that work together, but I think that for the most part, I, I would call it a, a Riker story. It's not all about him, but I'd say it's mostly a, about him. It kind of shifts into being more about these aliens or figuring out the mystery, but he is the one to go over there and, and save the crew member. So yeah, I, I, that's kind true. Of, I kind of see it as a Riker story. But, but no, I mean, Troy does have a really integral part here. And I know just about every episode is a Troy episode for you, Amy, but I mean, I think this one in particular... She's really great at, I mean, in a way, she's not necessarily functioning as a counselor, but more as an investigator, where she's saying, okay, let me bring together the people that had these experiences. What did you experience? What did you experience? Okay, you know, let's see where it goes from there. It's Riker's idea to go to the holodeck and construct things, but she's the one that kind of brings them together in order to, to do that. I think it's Troy's idea. Yeah, I think it is, actually. It is. Am I misremembering this, even though I, I saw it a couple hours ago? <laughs> I thought Riker made the suggestion, but oh well. Maybe they like made it at the same time. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I, th- I thought it was. I thought it was Troy's suggestion, but but yeah. to, to be honest, they're probably going to all end up there anyway, aren't they? It's an interesting example yeah. of the holodeck being used as an investigative tool, which they do use in other yes. episodes, don't they? In the, in the series, the holodeck mm-hmm. isn't just for fun. It's actually quite useful to run scenarios and investigate things. Yeah, very mm. much so. And that's, you know, another aspect of the holodeck that, you know, it's not just used for fun, that here it is, we're going to, you know, try and solve this mystery and and figure out these, you know, that they, the shared experience that they don't know that they have, you know. Yeah. And you're right, that was, that is one of the scenes, even now when I watched it, I got the chills, you know, when, Jordy has his hand and light, you know, stronger light. And then the mm-hmm. room is dark and all you see is this table. And oh, man, that yeah. just sent the chills well, through me. Before we go into that, can we go back a little bit? Because I was actually yeah. looking at the 
<laughs> at the transcript of the episode. So what like what happens when they're meeting together is that, you know, Troy says it seems you've had a similar experience. Is there anything else you remember besides a table? And then Riker says, maybe there's a way we can all help ourselves to remember more. And then it cuts to the holodeck. That's why I have the idea that it's Riker that's initiating it. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think it's both of them combined. Okay, okay. Because I think she says there's, you know, yes. Okay. okay. There's anyway, other people. Yes. Back to the, the creepy holodeck scene. <laughs> yeah. Did you like the holodeck scene, Justin? Well, you know, it like the first time that I saw this episode, it really creeped me out because, you know, it starts with a basic table and then the table gets shorter, it gets inclined, it's metallic, it's, you know, it has these cutting implements, there's all these clicking sounds, so it really disturbed me a lot. You know, watching it this time around, and other people have noticed this, the, the computer really jumps to some conclusions. Like it says, give me a metal table, and all of a sudden the metal table has like an implement on the side and has like something for your feet at the bottom and stuff like that. So it makes me wonder, like, does a holodeck have a way of reading your mind for what you want to give? But uh, but it's it's still creepy. And, you know, when I was a, a kid, I, I, I didn't see this episode when I was, a, I was a kid. I saw it much later. But when I was a kid, I was very much afraid of, actually being abducted by aliens during the night and having experiments done on me. So that's kind of imagery still affects me because it just like, ooh, you don't want that to happen. And then this episode is just happening. They don't, they're not even aware of it, except they're oversleeping. Yeah, I thought the same thing actually uh, two times when you le- when you said, yeah, the holodeck just sort of recreates exactly what they're saying. Definitely with the metal table, all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, it's got these implements and <laughs> I'm like, well, I, you know, I can forgive it because, you know, you're not going to go through every single yeah. table, you know, to save time to save for time. the boredom of the but, viewers. But it must be the case that it can't read your mind exactly because if you compare what's in the holodeck to what you see at the end, there are similarities, but it's it's quite different in some ways. Like it has the lights around it and, and even like the cutting blade is slightly different than what they have in the holodeck. So it's kind of just an approximation. Yeah. Well, and the other time when he's out, put a, a console, you know, with the buttons and stuff, and it's oh, yeah. exactly the same. And I was like, that's a pretty big leap to get there. <laughs> and it has like a little stopwatch or something on it, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess. But yeah, I mean, oh, go ahead. I guess just the prop department can't make endless amounts of tables, can they? So, so actually, one of the exactly. things I thought when I was watching this scene now was that how many different tables they would have to make, like the prop guys in order to actually fulfill the scene, you know, they're going to have to make this thing and that thing. And I think they probably just said, okay, we only need to make two tables or three tables. Like we don't need to make that many because we're not, you know, the scene can't go on for too long. So, and I mean, it's obviously there's a budget involved in making props as well. Right. So (laughs) they can't just go crazy. I mean, like they probably could on more recent Star Trek shows where they have more money. I think the, the thing that really got me in the holodeck was the, the cutting implement that Worf talks mm-hmm. about where he talks about it's a pair of scissors and then a pair of scissors, scissors suddenly appears and he sort of, sort of says like no one blade is slightly longer than the other one has a serrated edge and that that was really creepy because it, it, yes. the scissors, scissors are just quite an innocent looking type of implement yeah, aren't they? And when you wonder well, what they do with it. Well and it was the scissors it. from the barber you know it yeah. was those same scissors you know and i was like ooh that's that's creepy in and of itself you know but then it turns it into like a curved in blade and then like a serrated blade and you wonder like how are they using this hopefully that's not what they use to like sever riker's arm cuz yeah. that's ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah i yeah. i mean like i think one of the things that's really good about this episode is it does leave things to the imagination because you don't actually see people being experimented on toward the end you see some tubes in in rager but that's about it but you just have to imagine like all of this like cutting going on and turning this guy's blood into polymer i mean like your imagination runs wild with how those things can happen and how awful it is well yeah and then to find out you know riker has his arm scanned and to find oh, out his God. arm's been amputated and reattached and you're like oh my gosh this is just creepy and I was wondering what kind of experiments are the aliens doing? Like, what, what, like, do you know what I mean? Filling up somebody's arteries with polymer or atta- like mm-hmm. cutting off somebody's arm and then attaching it again. Like, what are they testing? That, do you know what I mean? Well, it seems so strange and bizarre. 
Yeah, you know, there, there actually was a novel follow-up to this. There was a Titan novel called Sight Unseen that came out a couple years ago where they go into the motivations of these aliens and why they're trying to do these these experiments. I won't go into it in too much detail, but basically they're having a problem in their own subspace domain and they need to see what they need to do in order to exist like in our universe because they have to get out. <laughs> so they're doing, I think, all of these experiments in order to to try to figure out ways that they can adapt their own themselves to, to living, you know, in, in our universe. But, you know, how that relates well, to I always, some of the things is a little weird. <laughs> yeah. I always figured like, you know, if some, you know, like, I don't know, taking apart a toaster, or, you know, something, it's like, how does this work? And so you take it all apart and put it mm. back together. And so I sort of figured that's what they were doing is how, yeah do these people work in their universe mm-hmm. to try and figure things out? I yeah. don't know why I said a toaster, but you know, cause I've never taken apart a toaster. Like the toaster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, just to be clear, data is not a toaster. There was an official ruling on that. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I think you're right. Like they're trying to do these things to figure out like how do these people work in order to maybe make some modifications to themselves because they are trying to create like a little pocket in our own universe in order to cross over, it seems. Yeah, they're trying to well, do... And- Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, they're trying to do that no, in the, on the cargo bay, aren't they? They're trying to recreate their type of space in the cargo bay so that they can... I guess they can exist in the Enterprise's reality version of space, uh, as well as trying to create a, the Enterprise's version of space in their space so they can experiment on the crew. In a mm-hmm. way, it's kind of a sad situation because... I mean, obviously, it's, it's 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 totally immoral, like scientific experimentation. But yes. Geordie does make that point at the end. They could be explorers like us. You know, they could be mm-hmm. studying scientific phenomena like us. And the two different, I guess, versions of reality just kind of like smushed together. And uh, and mm-hmm. they're not they're not. There's no way of them communicating with each other, I suppose. And so one is kind of experimenting on the other. It is definitely immoral. And obviously, that crewman died. And they kind of gloss over yeah. that completely, especially Picard, who's like, like, captain's log, everyone's fine. And I'm like, no, wait, 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 there's a, there's a yep. dead crew member. You lost man down, man yeah. down. Yeah. Well, well, I think the moral question is actually kind of interesting because it's immoral from our perspective, but they probably have a different way of justifying this or seeing this as moral themselves, right? Like, and I mean, that comes up in some other places in Star Trek where we're trying to kind of put our own morality on on others that may think of things differently um because i mean they probably feel that that by doing this you know needs of the many they're they're possibly saving more people than than have to die in their place but you know from our point of view it's definitely immoral but clearly they're thinking about things differently and actually the the novel that i mentioned before sight unseen is quite interesting because it goes into their society and their culture and not everyone agrees with doing these experiments and the way that they're going about it. So it kind of rounds things out and makes it really interesting. They're having like this whole discussion about it. Well, and I just think, you know, talking about these subspace aliens, like how creative are these story writers? I mean, I don't even understand subspace. And so here there's aliens living in subspace and, you know, sort of goes along with these parallel universes, you know, that here's Mm -hmm. just another universe that exists that we know nothing about. All of a sudden, you know, we're the enterprise is scanning, you know, this region and, and here pops up subspace, you know, I just, how does that even work when you think about all the different universes that are already out there? And now we have to multiply that by subspace universes. Yeah, because it's not an alternative universe, is it? It's like a right. different um, dimension, isn't it? So they're, li- yeah. they're, they're actually yeah. in a different dimension. So the alternative universe, like the Terran Empire, would also have these same aliens in their universe, just in a different dimension. So there's like multiple yeah. dimensions within different parallel universes, if that makes sense. Yes. I th- yeah, I think I think it's kind of like that. Although, I mean, of course, subspace is something that made up for Star Trek. We don't really know what it is. <laughs> but the, the way that I think about it, it's I, I almost think about it almost like it's similar to what you see in Time's Arrow, where there's things that are slightly out of phase and you can do something to go into that you know, phase that's just like right over here or existing in the same space somehow. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to even visualize it because you're getting into these higher dimensions that our brain just can't understand. But I think it is separate from from parallel universes and things like that. It's just 
it's almost like there's a there's different like layers of of reality and like we're in one place and they're over here and there are these other subspace areas kind of stacked around it i don't know but it's weird to think about because it's not a parallel universe it's like it's part of our universe but not usually accessible yeah yeah like on a different plane of existence or something it's kind of Mm-hmm. It's strange. It's the first. It's the first example in this episode of the mentioned. I think it's of the of tachyons. A tetrions. Tetrions. That's it. Tetrions. Yeah. It's the first mention of tetrions, and then they, the writers use tetrions a lot after this, don't they? To sort of yes. kind of do everything. <laughs> they're they're mysterious. Whatever whatever they are. Um, well, and like the only time we know subspace is like, well, send a subspace message. So are these aliens intercepting all of these subspace yeah, messages but, that are being sent? Yeah. Well, but 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 also I think uh, Jordy talks about in in the episode that there are an infinite number of subspace domains. Oh, I love that analogy <laughs> that he did with the, you know, like the honeycomb and you yeah. know there's these little pockets and you have to go exactly to that one area. That was a great visual. My math brain was going all about that. <laughs> Yeah, but but I think also I don't know how much it's explicitly stated on on screen, but certainly in other places, like in the novels, they talk about subspace as the place where you are when you're in warp, like you're going into subspace to be able to warp the space in a way that you can go faster than light, effectively. So, hmm. but I don't think they really say that on screen, but I think it's something that's been very much used, like in the novels, that they're actually in subspace when they're traveling in warp. Wow, I never thought of that it's yes. very weird but like if you think about it you probably wouldn't want to to warp the space that that we all share because that can affect other people or it can affect other you know planets or star systems so it's like they're warping the space that's kind of underneath in this other area of subspace and i've just come come to accept that because i've read it so much in hmm. in novels but uh yeah it's kind of weird what about the transporters because so you don't obviously go into subspace when you transport but your molecules get spread out, right? Or no, they don't. They get they get saved in the like data stream going to the transporter, right? But you become sort of like on the individual, on the like atomic level, you know, to the point yeah, where you molecular sort of, level. You sort of yeah. you're dis- displaced to the point where you just become tiny, tiny pieces mm-hmm. of like yeah molecules, molecules. So in a way, is that not something kind of aren't you all like at a subspace kind of level at that point, or you're in a completely different kind of alternate, not alternate, but different dimension yeah i think there's a couple different ways to to think about it i mean i think usually the way that they talk about it it's it's like you're you're being deconstructed and there's like a certain matter that's left that's sent along and then you have a pattern to reconstruct the rest of it at the other end so it's like they're sending the matter stream and the information elsewhere and it can be reconstructed but whether they are they sending it via subspace like how are they sending this pattern it's 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 a it's a good question whether they would send it through regular space or subspace or even like uh, I, I, when, now when I think of the transporter, I always think of when Brandon Shamatala was on Metatrex and they were talking about, um, different dimensions because his idea was that they actually kind of take that information and slide it into a different dimension and then slide it back into ours at a different spot <laughs> instead of hmm. just sending it through regular wow. space or subspace. So yeah, I, I like that idea that he, that he came up with that I haven't really heard much elsewhere, but I mean, yeah, there, there are these kind of mind-bending things to think about because we're making it all up. We don't know if anything like this is even possible, right? <laughs> and exactly. as much as I want to believe in subspace, like we found no evidence there is anything even close to like that. I know, like that's that. why I give credit to the writers. I mean, how creative would you have to come up with this idea of subspace and going on to this alien abduction that there's aliens living in subspace? I, it Kudos to the writers for sure. Yeah, definitely. So uh, let's uh, move on, and I want to talk to you about Data's poetry and how he is just (laughs) so trying. He's just trying his little heart out, and I love the scene when they're in engineering and he's asking Jordy for his feedback, you know, and it's just so interesting (laughs) to try and see Jordy like play it nice because he doesn't want to hurt his feelings. Well, if you're trying to, you know, save my feelings, let me remind you, I don't have any feelings. So <laughs> just tell me how was it, you know? So what'd you think of the poetry? Um, I, I, I love his poetry. I think um, 
especially the Ota Ota Spot. I think it's a great poem for a cat, actually, because just because of the nature of cats and how they're so sort of, I don't know, they seem so sort of independent and kind of withering towards human beings, you know, like, ugh. Um, Like a very sort of unemotional, grammatically correct mathematical poem about cats just seems to fit really well. I think there's something really endearing about the fact that um, Data wants to write emotional poetry. You know, this is like his artistic endeavor. Like he says, without criticism, an artist can't grow. Like he wants to grow as a, as a as a being. He wants to become human. He wants to be more human. He wants to grow as an artist. So I think it's actually really charming that he is trying to write emotional and touching and beautiful poetry. And I think it's really sweet that the way he thinks to do that is in his sort of mathematical way to have it rhyme, to have it be to fit the rules of different types of poetry, like haikus and sonnets and that kind of thing. And the iambic pentameter. Iambic pentameter, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But I also think, I don't know, I think that although people say data doesn't have any feelings, I do actually think that might not be necessarily true. I mean, maybe he doesn't have, because I know he gets the emotion trip and everything, but he has a great affection for Spot. uh, Spot, Like, maybe not affection, but a connection to it, like a, a sort of, friendship family type connection to spot i think if he he wouldn't have chosen to to write a poem about spot if he didn't feel something for spot so well yeah and at the end you know he ends it with you are my friend you know Mm -hmm. talking about spot yeah and it is an interesting question about data because i think the first time i saw tng i thought oh it's being presented as he doesn't have these emotions so he doesn't but as you look at it more like if his purpose is to be a Starfleet officer that accomplishes certain things. Like, why is he doing all of these artistic endeavors, poetry and painting and, and all of that? Like, why would he do that unless he really did have emotions in some sense? Like, the way I see it is he's not, like, highly emotional, but I think there are things there that are kind of like, um, almost like, I don't know, micro emotions or, or something. There's something that's there. Like it doesn't rule him, but he cares about doing things that are outside of what's really necessary. You know, composing a poem or cultivating friendships or trying a relationship or things like that. So I don't think it's true at all that he has no emotions or feelings or doesn't care. He clearly cares about some things, right? Yeah, and he is, he's really trying to evoke an emotional response. And I think you see that, uh, very similarly, like when he's playing the violin, you know, and mm-hmm. he combines different, uh, different styles, right? styles yeah. you know, but then still it's not his own as was pointed out, you know, and I just think, why are you caring so much? But then it goes back to data wanting to be human and evoking an emotional response in others is a very human thing to do. Yeah, and Data's kind of interesting because in a way he's kind of the opposite of the Borg. Like he's not trying to move toward perfection. He wants to move more toward imperfection because that'll, I think, help him to fit in more, connect more to his creator or something. I mean, I don't know if they really get into it, but it's it's almost like this imperfection is important to strive toward, which is very interesting because you usually see people striving more toward more of what people would consider as perfection. Yeah. Although... Then his poetry and things, he does want to be more perfect in that. It's it's weird. <laughs> he does seem concerned in this episode about Geordie when Geordie's visor blacks out for a moment, and um, he does. He, I, I mean, I, whether you could call it concern, like in the same sort of emotion that concern is, but he does seem un- disturbed by it, and um, he does also seem disturbed by the fact that he's lost time. And I guess you could yeah. say, well, that's that's uh, that's a concern that a machine might have over a malfunction of of, of, mm-hmm. of it of its like you know machinery of of its like technical working function, function. yeah, workings. Yeah. But it's more than that, I think. And he seem, and he does seem concerned about the rest of the crew when they figure out something's going wrong. So I, mm-hmm. I I've always thought data was more complex than simply like having an emotion chip and not having an emotion chip. And I think that his pursuit of, of trying to be more human and trying to engage in human activities, especially artistic ones. It is like music, painting, poetry. And there, there's a kind of human pursuits that don't really have, I would say, any sort of 
they're very human in the sense that there's no real like sort of technical uh, pers- like purpose. purpose. Yeah, I mean, there's a technical aspect yeah. to painting and there's technical as- technical aspects to playing music, but it's they're, they're done for pleasure and for for um, yeah. lifting the human spirit. So that's why he's so concerned with them, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has nothing to do with trying to improve his performance or anything like that. It's just he seems to enjoy it. You know, he seems to enjoy doing it um, and wants to to get better at it. Speaking of data, though, like they never talk about what they did to him in that hour and a half. Like, I don't know. What would they want to do to data? <laughs> I just well, wondered I about always it. figured like they took him and he's not like everyone else. And he didn't have the blood and the stuff that they, they just like could. take him apart. So I figured they took him and they're like, what the crap is this? And then put him back. That was my oh, thinking. Okay. I didn't... Yeah, like this this won't help us get over there. Send him exactly. back. <laughs> this is an advanced yeah. toaster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, I always, it, well, not always, but it was interesting to see Data so surprised when he found out he wasn't on the ship. Yeah. You know, it was like, what? well, he no, lost time. I wasn't on the ship. What's going on? It would be like if you blacked out all of a sudden and you lost an hour and a half and you'd be like, oh, no, what happened to me? <laughs> right. Yeah. I don't remember uh, too many drunk nights. Oh, no, no. I didn't say that. I do, I do wonder how they <laughs> Maybe got... you're abducted by aliens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do wonder how they got him into the other dimension, though, because he was standing upright at the console doing his you know, scientific research and then they can't drug him like they can drug the humans. They must have just like reached through the little portal and like grabbed him by the hair and yanked him through or something because, or he just yeah. walked towards it and went through it. I mean, they don't actually show you that, do they? But it's implied that he was taken away from the ship in the cargo bay while Geordie was having his brain scanned. And I think that mm-hmm. um, I just had this mental image of him kind of just wandering through this, this little port, little like door, like fuzzy oh. doorway <laughs> being experimented on and just wandering back again. <laughs> or maybe it's like in, in Remember Me when there's that portal and it seems like the, all this wind comes up and it's like sucking Beverly out. So maybe <laughs> yeah. something like that came and he just couldn't resist it and they wiped his memory of it or something. I don't. But yeah, he's standing up and then when he returns, he's, st- he's still standing up. Well, I think the same thing, <laughs> you know, like when they took Riker from his bed and that's got to scare every young child. I mean, to be pulled yeah. out from your bed for, by your feet, you know? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that definitely give you nightmares. But I just sort of figured that's how they took Data, just standing up. They just pulled him. But, yeah, they'd have to do something to his memory so mm-hmm. that he wouldn't remember that. Maybe that's yeah. what they were doing for the hour. Yeah, and we never see people return. Like, how do they return Riker to the bed and he's still, you know, like, under the sheets or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, that's the prime alien abduction though, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of all the scenes that you right. see like in the X-Files or any sort of films or TV shows about alien abduction. People are sort of raised up from the bed and sort of flown out the window while they're still lying down, which is, <laughs> is scary, but also a little bit funny as well. <laughs> like It's a little bit humorous. I actually laughed this time when I saw Riker because it, <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just so funny to see him just like sliding horizontally you know (laughs) and i think the way that they actually did the stunt was they had someone like slide down something vertically and then they just flipped it over but it's just funny (laughs) to see him sliding horizontally like that because it looks so i know but it's so scary (laughs) i didn't find it as scary this time sorry by your feet you know i just how many horror stories you know like you're you know trying to get away and you're like under the bed and someone grabs your feet and pulls you and you you see ah you know it's it's very traumatic i could see that yeah but yeah so what about Riker? he's the only one that shows physical signs that he's going through this insomnia like but jordy yawns at one point jordy yawns okay jordy yawns (laughs) but we've got Riker in bedhead and disheveled (laughs) for a lot of this episode oh yeah that's why i love this episode it's his bedhead and like how good, like he is. At, like how good Frakes is at being really, really tired in almost every scene. Just in the mm-hmm. first scene when um, um, Data and Geordie are explaining all this scientific techno battle to him, and he's yes. just like grabbing his chin and yawning, yeah. and just looking weary. You know, I just it's like you know, it's, it's yes, too early like, well, in the morning. What do you think? 
Yeah. Well, I wonder if they if they made sure to do those scenes when they were shooting for like 16 hours already or something. <laughs> <laughs> so he was actually tired. But no, I mean, Frakes is really great at seeming like he is really losing all this sleep. And in that scene where I think Jordy and Data are explaining things, it's like, I don't, I don't know. I'm too tired. Just do it. <laughs> I don't, yeah. It's, I don't. What do you think is best? Okay. Run your diagnostics. <laughs> that sounds good to me. Yeah. Well, and when I was watching it, I was like, man, because they don't do anything, any prosthetics or anything to change his look. It's just his acting and just disheveled his hair. But yeah. he it hair. changes him so much, you know, and same with frame of mind. Like he can play that crazy, you know, super tired look and not do anything physical, you know, makeup wise or prosthetics or anything like he does it like that. And I just think that's such a good sign of a great actor. I actually think everybody's acting in this episode was really good. And some of it is quite subtle, like at the poetry reading. I mean, I was just sitting here with my husband watching it. and We were just laughing because of everyone's reactions as the camera pans around all the faces <laughs> of all the people listening to listening to data, like read out his his poetry. You know, just the sort of subtle looks like the fact that Worf claps his hands like three times and then just stops clapping. You know, the, the, the Picard gets up and then sort of with a sort of frozen smile has to sit back down again. You know, it's just or, or the fact that Troy just about smiles a little bit like when he's talking about Spot. She's just about to laugh, but she's trying to hold it in. They all really good. Yeah. They all did a really good job, I think. Yeah. And as they pan around, there's people folding their arms and just kind of rolling their eyes. And I guess Data can't pick up on that stuff that he's not getting a good reaction. Because if I were to look at that crowd, I'd be like, they hate me. <laughs> Well, he did pick up on it because he talked about it with Jordy that it's, you know, he said, well, people seem disinterested, okay. you know, and yeah. I just that scene where when they pan through and you see Lieutenant Jay, you know, sitting next to Picard and they give each other these looks. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, how many lectures at university have I been in? That's <laughs> like, oh, kill me now. I'm not interested, you know, and I just like, oh, that just it resonates because. Every, I think everyone can relate to that scene. Yes, although I don't think I've been present for poetry quite like that. But I always really admire the writers because they wrote it in such a way that you really believe that's how an android would construct a poem about a cat. It's like very like long words and very technical and it's great. What else? Well, I mean, we could talk about the... Uh, I guess we could talk the ending scene, but go ahead. We could talk about the fact that there's actually a lot of um, sort of supplemental characters introduced in this episode, like the bar, like the barber, and isn't there a helmswoman that Riker starts like mans y mansplaining to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there, like, yeah. So there are a couple. Bar uh, Mott was actually in Ensign Row before this, but you don't see him very much, and it's it's cool to see to see Mott, and you see. I think at the helm, it's, it's uh, Rager who gets, I think the first name is Serial. But she was actually in three other episodes, but this is the only one where she has any kind of prominence. But it's nice that there's, and there's also, who is that, like, random civilian woman <laughs> that they're talking to? Yeah, that has the insomnia that they're in the holodeck with. Yeah. It, it was cool That's like, okay, it's not just happening to the senior staff, but then there's this other person, they don't even give her a name, do they? <laughs> She's No, I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I find I would I thought it was interesting when uh, Troy and Riker are talking and he's telling her that he feels tired and, you know, and then Troy's like, oh, well, you're not the first to tell me this. And then like a couple sentences later, she's like, well, I'm going to see who else on the crew has experienced this. And I'm like, wait, didn't you just say that? So I, I sort of didn't like that discontinuity there with her parks i'm like you just said that there were I thought others she was just on gonna the find ship. there were more people i thought she was just gonna take a survey and try to find more people but maybe one but or then two she only them. found three i don't know uh, i don't know maybe there was an interview process to be in that room because they couldn't have <laughs> yeah. the hundred people that were abducted or whatever i don't know <laughs> the guy who you know came back 
and actually died. Like, how come he wasn't involved in this process? Yeah. Oh, I guess because he was abducted. Well, he was he was abducted and he was still there. But I want to talk about that guy because I feel sorry for him. So Crusher comes up and she and and she, I think she hits her com badge and she's like, "We need this equipment over to, you know." Deck nine, section seventeen. It's like, can't you do a site to site transport to sick bay? He looks really bad. <laughs> okay, and another thing, like, so Picard's like, well, who else is gone? And then you know they're back on the bridge, and they're like, well, Ensign so and so's back to his quarters. All right, let's go get him. And then they're all they, just like walk down the corridor, through. They're not even walking fast. <laughs> well, earlier in the episode, they actually think there's going to. Do they think there's an explosion that's happening in the cargo bay? Yeah, and there's mm-hmm. people in the cargo bay. There's like three crewmen in the cargo bay, and the next yeah. shot is them walking casually down the hallway. Yeah, just like, to the cargo exactly. Bay. All right, guys, yeah. run, it, run. Yes. No, I mean, like you, you would think for something like that, they would just do an emergency site to site transport right outside the door, and then they'd be there. And also for the guy in the corridor. So yeah, that part's weird. I don't know why they did it that way. Because... I know the walking in the corridor. It happens so many times on TNG. It's very well. Annoying. Sometimes they're running, which is great. But in this case, they're just kind of casually strolling. Like I hope I, I make it there on time. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling, it's a saunder. It's not even walking briskly. They're just do do do. Maybe it was at the end of a 16 hour shooting day, and they just didn't have the energy to run yeah. <laughs> or the budget to do the transporter effect <laughs> but yeah okay, i noticed so, it this time yeah so another thing that uh listeners if you <laughs> remember one thing that really annoys me and every time and it shows up here because we're in the cargo bay those stupid plastic containers <laughs> those still bother you yes okay so at the very okay it looks fine, but then at the very last scene, the subspace, you know, collapses, and then you have this little, I don't know, sphere that's flying around, and uh-huh. it flies past the cargo bay, or the cargo containers, and they tipsy-turvy, oh, d- and they? there's nothing in them. It is so fake. I can't stand They're those just waiting to be filled containers. for something. They're just empty containers. But aren't those the cargo bay <laughs> containers that... One of doesn't one of them hit Worf in, an, in like another episode and paralyzes. Yeah, yes, that I'm sorry, that bounces off Worf. That's supposed to be so and like heavy. Destroys his See, back. <laughs> I noticed that one more, but yeah. What was what was that, that episode that was ethics, we did? Ethics. Ethics. No, no. What was the episode where we talked about things? Oh, unrealistic things. Oh, yeah, unrealistic versus realistic. Yeah, it's called bouncing plastic barrels. That was one of my barrels. unrealistic things. <laughs> Those cargo bay containers. Oh. So annoying. That's funny because I didn't even notice that. You didn't. They like tipsy-turvy. And I'm like, they are filled with air. There is nothing in them. What I want to know is... It's a waste of space. What I want to know is... um, I I didn't actually think about this before, but this is the first episode where I actually started thinking about it, was why are there civilians on the Enterprise? Like, why are there civilians on the Enterprise? Oh, that's a long discussion we could have. I mean, just out of curiosity, because <laughs> in this episode, there, like you said, there is a civilian who is being abducted and experimented on. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if they really talk about it on screen, but I think the implied idea is that um, at the start of, of TNG that there's been like a period of, of peace for a while, and they're going to do longer missions of exploration. And in order to make that more bearable, that they're able to have have like families on but then also for the the civilians i think it's not just like starfleet scientists i think often they have civilian scientists as well who might not be in starfleet but have a certain specialty that they need so i think i think that's why although we don't know anything about her we don't know her name or what she does but (laughs) i assume she's some kind of scientist or support personnel i mean it must be the case that there are people who are civilians because you know even in the military there's you know civilian support and things like that so I think it can it Maybe can she's a waitress in 10 Forward. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe she's married to someone who's a Starfleet officer on the ship. We don't know. Oh, there you go. But well, that's even better. I want to know more, though. Like, who is yeah. this? <laughs> I know. We need more lower decks. Yes. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I'd love to see one that's just about civilians, but it's probably unlikely that we'll get that. But that would be cool to see a Star Trek show that's just that's centered more on civilians and about like how their lives go and occasionally they'll have interactions with Starfleet and maybe someday. <laughs> so I, I actually want to talk about the the ending scene because maybe I have a different impression of it than, than other people do because I, I think when Riker goes into this area, I know it's just like the two 
beds or tables or whatever that they that they have there and maybe like four or five um, aliens but i i find and there's all the clicking going on and i find it kind of um disturbing but it was interesting that i was reading the uh the tng companion that uh larry nemichek wrote and and there's some comments in there about how the the production crew was very disappointed in the ending scene because they felt like two things like it could have been like creepier there could have been lower lighting or smoke or something like that and that the aliens i think they described them in the book as fish monks like that they weren't (laughs) (laughs) that that they weren't actually very scary like it worked for me but i'm curious based on that and knowing that like on the production side of it they're pretty disappointed in the ending like what you guys think i mean clara does that work for you do you wish it was more do the aliens not seem disturbing enough i think the aliens are too humanoid to be honest actually i mean i know they Mm. have fish faces but and i've always said this and i still believe it after many many years of star trek and all the series and being a big fan but all the aliens in star trek are too humanoid and i know there's a there's a story behind that i know that all the aliens are supposed to have originated from one particular alien you you know what marina certis's uh response to that is yeah i was gonna mention yeah we're her response is, we'll have more uh, non-humanoid aliens on Star Trek when we have non-humanoid actors. <laughs> she, I guess she's got yeah. a point, because if you think about it, yes. they have a certain budget for special effects, certain budget for makeup. No. You are going to have, you have to have humans portraying, obviously, portraying people no. on the show. So I can see that. But I think um, I think in, that in this context, if I could rewrite the episode a little bit, like in my, my dream scenario... I would have the aliens at the end be much more strange and weird and less humanoid and perhaps maybe more like giant jellyfish or something, something really weird and strange. And Oh, you mean like the space jellyfish from Encounter at Farpoint? Maybe not like those. <laughs> Great joy and gratitude. No, um, I think maybe more like, I don't know. Well, yeah, maybe perhaps. But something, something kind of stranger and weirder, perhaps maybe in keeping with the fact that they're in a different dimension. So... Mm-hmm. Hmm. maybe it's just harder for human beings to comprehend and even scarier for Riker. But I understand that they've only got a certain amount of time to tell a story. They've only got a certain amount of budget and dressing people in monk's robes and giving them fish faces is probably as far as they could go, really. Yeah, hmm. I th- I thought when I saw, well, the first time we go, we only see this monk robe, you know, and so you don't even see their faces. And I thought, huh, well, I, th- I thought a couple things. I thought, well, that's pretty good because, you know, the less you see, the more it's left to the viewer's imagination. And that's pretty scary. You don't even see their faces. You don't know what they look like. They're just walking around slowly and clicking, you know. And so that's pretty scary. I think it adds to that element of suspense and fear. And then and then I the second thought I had was, oh, well, that's pretty cheap of them. They don't even have to see, you know, all they have to do is put on this robe and then, ooh, it's scary, you know? So yeah, those But you do see their faces thoughts. a little bit. Yeah, but that first time, that was uh-huh. my first initial okay. thoughts when I saw them because you don't see their faces until the until ending scene. Until a little scene. later, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It. I guess it always worked for me. And yeah, probably in a perfect world, it would be something that would be really hard to to understand, like, um, I don't even know what it what it would be like. I mean, it's hard to to even imagine. Like, Claire, is there is there some other alien in Star Trek that you felt was was just really non humanoid and very hard to comprehend that that should have been here or that would have worked better here? Maybe not in Star Trek. I would say I think this is one way one one type of franchise that falls down. I think maybe something like there's a lot of strange aliens in Babylon Five. Or something like, mm. say, for instance, in even the a most recent film that I saw, um, Annihilation, which is available on Netflix. It's about a very weird alien kind of influence. Or like the film Contact, the alien in the film Contact, she can't really comprehend it. So it has to take on a human shape, but it's obviously not. Or Arrival. Mm-hmm. Arrival is another example of very strange aliens that no. have a different concept mm-hmm. of time. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is something that I think Star Trek missed out on doing i understand that star trek does it's star trek really about being human isn't it it's the, it's, the, it's the human condition it's the ideas about being human so uh, they maybe they don't want something that's too alien to be well in the there, story. there have actually 
there have actually been a, I think, a couple of 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 instances, even in the original series, like when you when you see the the Tholians, they seem quite alien and quite different from what we might expect, or like the Excalbian, like the rock people from the Savage Curtain, those seem quite alien and different. Or the Horta, so, the Horta as well. Or the yeah. Horta, yeah. yeah. That's what Which, I was thinking. You know, and that was all on TOS, and they didn't even have that much budget. So I think if maybe if they wanted to, they could have, but maybe they were trying to get away from a certain um, factor that you have now looking at the original series where it's like, oh, it's a guy under a carpet, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. But even though I love that stuff, but um, yeah, it's just interesting to, to to think about. Yeah, maybe it could have been more alien, more frightening. There is one other thing that I thought that we haven't mentioned, which I thought might just be worth mentioning. It's just a very small scene where Geordie is um, in sick bay with Crusher and his visor obviously isn't working. And I don't know about you, but I often forget that Geordie's blind because he's so capable mm. and he has, not that blind people aren't capable, but he has a, a visor and um, he acts like he can he can see and obviously he can see certain certain things are a different spectrum than other people. But, you know, to all intents of purposes, he's able to have a, a good level of vision. So when they took the visor off and Crusher was actually physically helping him, guiding, guiding him, him to a seat and telling him where the seat was and telling him where to sit down. I thought it was very deliberate on the writer's part because she could have just brought the scanning equipment to his head and, and, and scanned him yeah. while he was, or a tricorder while he was sitting on the, on the yeah. bed. So I think they're trying mm-hmm. to make, they're trying to remind the audience that Geordie is blind or partially sighted. And they're trying to also remind them that anything that interrupts with his visor or, damages his visor actually affects his ability to live a normal life and i thought that was really yeah a really good it's tiny it's very tiny but i thought it was a very interesting scene no it's a good point and i i often forget too because there's only really a few places where you see that and even as she's guiding him toward that he's like feeling around for the seat and i mean i think they do a really good job of making you believe that's what's happening and that without the visor you can't really see anything but yeah it's um it's true there's only a couple places you can see it maybe in other places like the the defector when he not the defector i think it's the enemy that's it yeah the With enemy the romulan um <clears throat> on, on a planet and he just kind of loses his visor at one point or he can't see and he has to have someone else help him but there's only a couple places i think where you really notice that a lot but it's true they deliberately put that in this episode yeah, I thought that was a really nice touch when uh, Beverly grabs his chin and places it mm-hmm. in the scanner. I thought, yeah. I want to talk about the pillow Riker has. Oh my God, yes. Why is it so shiny? <laughs> Everything's shiny in the future. Well, you know, it, actually the thing I noticed about the pillow is it's not triangular like you often see. <laughs> like oh. on TNG era Star Trek, it's like a rectangular pillow. <laughs> but I don't know, it's a small thing, but... Bed, beds. And when he... Go- Beds and, beds and Star Trek always look incredibly uncomfortable. Just the beds in, in Deep oh, Space Nine, the, the beds in Sick Bay, even the beds in Discovery looked really uncomfortable. I'm thinking, it's it's more comfortable than the Klingon shelf, though. That's right? true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they well, don't. Like, look why like are they always a uh, single? Like. I'm single and I sleep in a queen size. I'm not going <laughs> to limit myself to this single bed. That's a good point. I don't That's know. a really good point, actually. That's a good point. At least, like, narrow Bud- little Budget hearts. for buying beds on <laughs> the set. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. And like, I, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but also something you rarely, rarely see in, in TNG is when Riker goes to the bathroom and it actually has a star date and a time, like on a little clock in the bathroom. I don't know if you noticed that, but... That's very rare to see. Isn't that because the alarm, that's the alarm that goes off that he presses. Because in the beginning, there's an alarm that goes off, I think, to wake him up and he presses the alarm. And you're right, it's it's on a little clock. But he goes to the bathroom and he he goes to see the time and it has the star date on it too. Anyway, it's just one of those things that you almost never see in TNG. So there's a couple interesting little things in there. Well, and I thought it was interesting that, yeah, he went into the bathroom and there was water already in the sink. I'm like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> the computer Oh, he didn't like coming. push a lever or something? Yeah. <laughs> fills yeah, up the sink. like he went to splash his face and there was water already there. I'm like, you just walked in. <laughs> Automatic water. Okay. Hope it was the right temperature. <laughs> Ice cold to wake him up. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well... <laughs> This schisms, there was so much to talk about. What are your final thoughts overall for this episode? 
Clara? Um, so I think it's a great episode. I would really recommend watching it if no one's seen it before. Um, and also the first time you watch it, you don't... Well, we've probably spoiled it for you actually with this podcast. Spoilers. But the first time you watch it, you're not actually sure exactly what's going to happen. So it's also a little bit of a mystery. I think it's funny. It's fun. It's also creepy and scary. And everybody, almost everybody, apart from, I guess, Picard and a few major other actors, but most most characters get a chance to have a little scene where they can shine and everyone plays their part. So it's a really good episode. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoy this episode. I know we talked about some things that seem a little weird or that maybe don't quite work, but I, I've always enjoyed it. I think it, there's a great mystery. Even on, even on a rewatch, it's interesting to see them try to put it together. And I kind of love the structure that you see in a lot of TNG episodes where there's something funny at the beginning and the sinister stuff happens later. They're not going to give you like, here's the sinister thing. Because in the teaser, it basically ends with uh, with Riker just, you know, worrying a little bit about his insomnia, but you have no idea what's going on. But I, I think it has, it has a good mix of humor and mystery and suspense and you know, kind of horror, but it more in your imagination. But, but also, it got us into some discussions I didn't expect, like what is subspace, <laughs> and what are all these different dimensions and possibilities, and do you go to, you know, into subspace for warp? So, I think it generates some interesting conversations, and you know, it's it's quite an enjoyable episode. I I always like watching it, and again, I'll I'll just give another plug for you know, if listeners haven't read uh, the novel Sight Unseen, the Titan novel, it's a really great follow up to this. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot, and I'd highly recommend that as well if you want to see more of these aliens or what they're all about. Yeah, I mean, we definitely did get into some discussions, like you said, some deep ones with subspace and also the morality of, you know, testing subjects, and and then it is, in my, whenever I think of schism, it's always that holodeck scene because it just, it chills me every single time, and and I like that aspect that it still does that even after I've seen it umpteen million times. Um, it's great to see Riker because we don't really get, I guess, too many Riker stories because this is what season six, six yeah. season six. Yeah. And, you know, sort of by then it's the Picard and data show type of thing. So I like that. It is sort of a Riker story, but then we get people coming together, you know, to solve it and bringing in Worf and Jordy and Troy and Data is really, really cool. Just a little bit of Picard. Um, we do get to see a lot of secondary characters, so the ship feels very full and very complete, and I like that about this episode as well. So I, it is. It's a great episode, and I'm... So glad we had a chance to talk about it. So, Clara, where can listeners find you online? Um, so you can find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. So um, I'm always there chatting away. So if you let, you know if you stop over, please say hi. You can also find me on Twitter at Clara Jean MC. And also, obviously, you can find me on Primitive Culture. And we'll have a new episode out very soon. So look out for that. Yeah, so thanks, Clara, for being on the show today. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. We'll have to have you back sometime. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so a preview for next week's Earl Grey episode. So Richard will be back next week and we will be picking up our favorite character moments uh, series. This time we'll be talking about season four. So go ahead and get your picks ready for your favorite character moments from season four, because that's what we'll be bringing to you next week. Well, it's been fun talking about schisms with Clara Cook, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here's what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. And it really speaks to, to me, Halliday's ego even, of I'm going to make everyone love what I love, and then that's how they'll win the contest. You know, and, and it's sad that it feels like it all became that, what you're saying, Matt, of it, everyone not even having... Um, the creativity to have their own stuff anymore. It's all about what Halliday was interested in. Um, and, and then I think, too, it really also could be even a commentary about greed in society now that everything really revolved around wanting to get his, in, you know, his fortune. So they did all the research they had to do because they just wanted the money. Warp 5. Wait, hold on. You don't, you don't have... A, uh, a, a reflection. 
there's beams of light traversing the ship, cutting you. Mm. And my lack of logic is what's astounding here. Yeah, because you made an assumption based on zero evidence. Except for the fact that they just melted. Yeah, the three we that we've seen, we don't know that what the rest of them are doing. This is we the first one. We don't know if it was anymore. Okay, let's scan the melting. Meta treks. And, what? And, and do it all over again. Are you again. bad-mouthing Voyager <laughs> to a guy who hosts a Voyager <laughs> podcast? Uh, you know I am. I, I always love to rib you about Voyager, but they, they really kind of play that card in this episode. They they hit that magic reset button. So. T- take that, you Deep Space Nine-loving Voyager-hating <laughs> reset button obsessing fans. There's a reset button right here in this episode of Deep yeah. Space Nine. <laughs> Literary Treks. But that was also like one of the core ideas of the story before I even knew much about how it was going to develop, was this notion that we could find something to explore that would allow different groups of people to come together to explore it than we're used to seeing. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, in most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website, or grab the RSS link. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Gray. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not being abducted by aliens in the middle of the night? Well, I don't know if I'm going to get any sleep tonight. (laughs) I'm going to (laughs) worry if I'm going to get abducted tonight. But in the meantime, uh, while I stay up all night, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. Uh, I'm currently tweeting out my Season 5 rewatch of The Next Generation, and you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, Amy, where can people contact you when you're not trying to stay awake while listening to Data's poetry? Well, I'll be sure to be getting lots of sleep, because that will put me straight there. So. Oh, I feel bad for Data. <laughs> I know. Well, you can find me here on the network. I co-host The Edge, which is Trek FM's podcast for Discovery. I do that with Brandon Shea Mutella. You can find me on Twitter, at Miss Amy Nelson, but my favorite place is on the Babel Conference. If you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. And we'd like to take this opportunity and recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Justin Ozer, Michael Huter, and Thomas Appel. Thank you so much for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. Well, listeners, join us next week for another cup of Earl Grey. Things are only impossible until they're not. Great joy and gratitude. <laughs>